Glad to be with you today and be able to share God's Word with you. Uh, When Mark and I sat down to plan this message, we agreed it probably wouldn't be a great idea for me to jump in to the hardest part of Daniel and attempt to make some sense of it. Uh, Mark has already spent a lot of time wrestling with these difficult passages and images like the unicorn goat that we learned about a couple weeks ago. Uh, But as I was preparing my last message, which was out of Daniel actually a couple months ago, I was was, um, teaching on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I ran into a verse in Daniel that really caught my attention. It was Daniel 9.23 where the angel tells Daniel that he is greatly loved. Now, just to give you a little bit of backstory for me personally, for about the last seven years, I've been really curious about what the Bible teaches about God's love. This started while I was in seminary, and it's continued to today. In fact, I spent quite a bit of time searching through the Old and New Testaments to understand the words that God that describe God's love for his people and to know what it's trying to communicate to us about his love. So today's message is actually rooted in my quest to answer this question of the Bible. Does God's love mean that he only makes a decision for me to do good to me? Or does he actually take delight in me and desire me? Another way to ask this question is, I know God is committed to me, but does he actually like me? I know God gave his son to save me, but does God actually want me to have a close relationship with him? Does he want me near him? Now the reason why I believe this question matters is God's love is often taught as only a choice that he makes to act for someone's good. In other words, God's love does not have an emotional component to it. It does not, excuse me, it does not include affectionate desire. So you could call this willful, disinterested benevolence. That is, God's love means he makes a decision to act for our good and does not have any emotion attached to it or desire for self-benefit. So I want to ask the question, is that what the Bible teaches? Is this how God reveals his love? Or does God's love mean that he both sacrificially pursues the good of his people, we could call that commitment, and he also passionately pursues his people to enjoy them? We could call this delight. Is God's love toward his people only commitment? Or is it committed delight. Now let me, let me attempt to illustrate why this matters to us as, as humans. If you, if you had a friend who told you, I will be committed to, you, to your good as long as you live, but I can't stand you and I don't want you near me, <laughs> would you call that love? Or would you go looking for a friend somewhere else? If your boyfriend, ladies, got down on one knee and said, I would really like to make your life better by giving myself to you, so I'm willing to put up with all your faults and flaws and marry you. (laughs) Would you call that love? Or would you go find another boyfriend? Now what if your dad, kids, what if your dad told you, I will gladly sacrifice my time and energy and money for you, but I don't really want to take the time to get to know you, play with you, or enjoy you. Would you call that love? Or would you wish you had a different dad? What if your wife came to you, guys, 
and said, I don't have any feelings for you anymore. Instead, I've fallen in love with another man. But I'm still committed to your good, and I'm willing to stay here and keep doing all the things I've been doing to serve you and the kids. Would you call that love? Or would you think it'd be better if she moved out? Now, let's get to the important stuff. What if the God you picture in your head comes to you and says, I have rescued you in Christ and will forever be committed to your good. Your sins are washed away in the blood of Christ. But your continued failures and blunders are a major turnoff to me. I can only tolerate you. I cannot possibly enjoy you at least until you get to heaven and I finish making you like Jesus. Because of your ongoing sin, I just don't want to get that close to you. Would you call that love? Now, I know I've just asked you if you would call that picture of God an accurate description of love. Now, perhaps there are some here who actually believe that's how God operates with his people. Now, it's okay for us to ask this question you, know, you humans, what do you think love is? But the most important question, the question we want to ask is, what does God say about God's love? And it's revealed to us in his word. Is it commitment only or is it committed delight? In his book, You're Only Human, Kelly Capick writes that when a Christian is asked, does God love you? Their usual answer is yes. But then if you ask them, does God like you? They're often unsure. The question often reveals a deep and abiding insecurity about God's attitude towards us. So I want to ask you these questions, and as I do, I just want you to let them sink in. Does God like you? Does God desire you? Does God enjoy you? Does God rejoice over you? Does God take pleasure in you? Does God gladly accept you? Does God find satisfaction in you? Does God cherish you? Does God delight in you? Does God want you to be near him? Let's take these questions to the Lord in prayer and then to our text. Father, we thank you for your word, which brings clarity to our lives. There's so many things that we distort and we twist because we don't know you and we don't know what your word says. So would you help us now as we seek to know what you've revealed about your love for us, your people. May our eyes be open to what you have to say to us and help us to apply it to our lives. May it make a difference as we leave this place. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Deuteronomy 7 is a small section of a larger sermon that Moses preached to Israel. And if you think our sermons here are long, just read this sermon. Remember, now remember with me that God brought Israel out of Egypt He made a covenant with them at Mount Horeb. Then he led them toward the promised land. The people of Israel rebelled against God and chose not to go and take the land. So God punished them with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And he made sure that the entire generation that was 20 years of age or older died in the wilderness because they'd refused to take the promised land. And once those were all dead, God began again to lead his people toward the promised land. But before they enter the land, Moses delivers this message to them. And in it, he reminds them of much of what God had already revealed to them at Mount Horeb. So there are many parallels in the book of Deuteronomy to the book of Exodus, which gives the account of what God spoke to them at Mount Horeb. 
So Moses begins his sermon by recounting Israel's history, reminding them of the unbelief that kept them from taking the land in the first place. They had believed that God hated them and he wanted to destroy them. Moses doesn't want them to repeat that mistake, so he urges them to believe that God wants to bless them. He reminds them of all the great things God has done for them, and he exhorts them to respond by loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. To do that, they will need to turn from their idolatry and all the false hopes idol worship held out to them. They would need to avoid placing their hope in idols of wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Instead, they would need to run to God and place their hope in him. They would need to trust that he viewed them as a precious treasure and that if they obeyed him, they could enjoy all the bounty of the promised land. So these themes in Moses' address to the Israelites appear throughout the book, and we see them in our passage today. Now, we're only going to have time today to cover the first part of this passage. Perhaps we'll be able to come back and finish it in the future. Look with me at verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. The first thing we should observe in this passage is that it begins with a call to completely do away with the idolatry of the nations that they are about to conquer. And part of that call means devoting them to complete destruction. And if we were to flip a few pages over to the book of Joshua and learn about the actual conquest of the land, we would see that sometimes this complete destruction or uh, devoted destruction meant that they would completely destroy an entire city and the people in the city as they did at Jericho. Other times it meant that they would keep the city intact. However, they were never, ever supposed to keep idolatry intact. Every trace of it was to be eliminated. And in the culture of that time, this would have been a dramatic demonstration that the God of the Israelites was stronger than the God of the idols, for they were not able to defend themselves against him. Moses also reminds them that God does not want them to make covenants with the Canaanites, and God forbids them from marrying the Canaanites. And the reason is given in verse 4. Moses tells them that being married to someone engaged in idolatry would easily influence the Israelites to abandon God and serve idols. So let's pause here and ask this question. Here we are roughly 3,200 years later. Are we still dealing with idolatry? And if so, are we still called to eliminate it? The Apostle John told us in 1 John 5.21, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now in America, we don't see physical idols as prominently as in other countries. But an idol is not just a physical thing. An idol is anything that we pursue in order for the idol to give us what only God is meant to supply. With that in mind, What are some of the things that we run to in order for them to do something for us that only God was meant to do? Think with me. We look to money to give us security. We look to relationships to establish our worth and value. 
We look to our accomplishments to help improve our self-image. When we run to idols, we make them more important than God, and we begin to worship them. And while we often run after any number of idols, and we need to repent of that, I think the hardest idol to identify and deal with is the idol of the self, ourselves. Our sinful hearts are inclined to make ourselves the center of the universe. And our culture bombards us with messages that reinforce that idea. As a result, we often look to ourselves as the ultimate authority. And we cast God's authority off. Like when we ignore a command in scripture because we think we know what's best for ourselves. But we also twist God-given desires and attempt to satisfy them in ways that God never intended. We'll say more about that in a moment. But what we should take from this section is that God expects his people to be on the warpath, destroying all forms of idolatry. For us today, this doesn't look like entering temples and tearing down physical idols. It means repenting of our idolatry and turning back to God. It means not being content to let the world system tell us that idolatry is okay. It means taking the sin of idolatry seriously and seeking to root it out in our lives, confessing that we often bow down to the idol of self and expect it to do for us what only God can do. Now notice with me the reason given in the text that the Israelites should eliminate idolatry. What does he say? Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So why should they destroy idolatry? Because the Lord God had separated them from the other nations. That's what it means to be holy in this context. He had chosen them out in order to be his treasured possession. Now here Moses is referring back to God's words in Exodus 19.5. Where God said, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now the Hebrew word here for treasured possession, as one commentary pointed out, it occurs only eight times in the Old Testament. While six of these uses are used metaphorically of Israel, The key to understanding this concept of treasure is found in 1 Chronicles 29.3 and Ecclesiastes 2.8, where the word denotes valued possessions, specifically the treasure of kings. So let's just take a look at one of those passages. 1 Chronicles 29.3, David tells the people here in this passage that he is going to give his treasure to God to help build the temple. 1 Chronicles 29.3 Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the, house, for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So Moses is choosing to use this same word treasure to speak about the way God feels about his people. So what is he revealing about God's heart toward Israel? They are incredibly valuable to him. He treasures them. They are desirable and have great worth in his eyes. This is helping us begin to answer this question. Does God like his people? But notice with me how he qualifies these statements. God chose them to be a treasured possession. 
He goes on to explain what this choice involved. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. There are a couple of things we need to get clarity on in these verses. First, what does it mean that God set his love on them? That's how the ESV translates it in other translations. The NIV chooses to translate it, God set his affections on them. If we turn to our dictionaries, we find out that this is referring to a strong attachment that springs from pleasure in the object of love. That's one option this word could mean. Or it could mean a reasoned, unconditional decision to love the object. So we have two options. So let's say it another way. First of all, God attached himself to Israel. Either, here are two options. Because he delighted in them, in something in them, or because he had made a prior choice to be devoted to them. So what are the options? Which options should we choose in this context? Is God saying, I set my love on you because I thought you were impressive? Or is God saying, I chose to love you because I chose to love you? Let's look back at verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was not because Israel was impressive. They were smaller than all the other nations. Listen to this conclusion from one of the Hebrew dictionaries. Thus the bond of love between Yahweh and his own people does not spring from any qualities inherent in Israel, but from his own past decision, incomprehensible to mankind. You see, God set his love on Israel for no reason outside of himself. He did it as a sovereign choice, completely outside of them or anything they could do. It had nothing to do with what they, apart from God, brought to the table. And what did this sovereign love look like when it was played out in the history of Israel? Look at verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God loved Israel, therefore he saved them from Egypt. God's love motivated him to deliver them. Now I want to back up and look at what we just covered. Moses has told them that God doesn't want them to pursue idolatry. Instead, they are supposed to destroy it. But what is his reason? Because you are holy to God, namely, you belong to him, you are a precious treasure to God, and he's made you this treasure not because of anything that you contribute to him. Now think with me for a moment. If idolatry means that people turn to other things besides God in order to get something they're supposed to find only in God, then what is this text saying about what the people of Israel are going to be tempted to run to, to find in the idols of the Canaanites? Love! 
Why should you smash their idols? Because God loves you with an eternal, unchanging, unconditional love. Don't go running to the idols to find something that will attempt to love you and promise to care for you. Can an idol treasure you? Does it have a heart? Does it have affections so that it can value you and consider you precious? I love you as my treasure. And it isn't based on anything you do. So you can't lose it. That's pretty strong, isn't it? But now we need to ask this question. Does this apply to us today? That was nice for those Israelites back then to hear that from God. I think the Bible teaches that it does apply today, but I need to answer some questions so that you just don't take my word for it. How do we know that God's love for us, the church, is the same as his love for Israel? Well, let's start with Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Does Christ love his church? Yes. He loved it so much that he died to save it. God's love is not something he only shared with Israel. He also shares it with us, the church. Second question, is Jesus' love for the church the same as it was for Israel? Does it involve choosing to treasure them? Treasure us as a precious treasure? Ponder with me what we just read out of Ephesians. Jesus was given a bride. Yet this bride, the church, had a problem. She, like Israel, had nothing to commend herself to God with. She was dirty with sin. What did Jesus do? He still made a choice to love her. He gave himself up for her on the cross. But it doesn't stop there. He gave himself up for her for a reason, the text says, so that she could be attractive to him, verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why we sing. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son. Why? To make a wretch his treasure. Or in the song, My song is love unknown, written by Samuel Crossman. We sing, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown. Why? That they might lovely be. This is why it says that Jesus cherishes the church in verse 29. In his heart, he is not cool toward the church. He has affection for her. From his heart, Jesus values the church and treats it affectionately as if it is his own body part. 
Okay, so I'm arguing that the Bible teaches that God sovereignly loves and chooses to treasure his people, both Israel and the church. But what about individuals in both those groups? Does the Bible say that God loves individuals, that he's committed to them, that he is committed to delight in them? Well, here are two examples from the Old Testament. First of all, Solomon. The queen of Sheba told Solomon this in 1 Kings 10, 9. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Or what about Daniel? This is the verse I told you about at the beginning of the sermon. In Daniel 9, the angel comes to him and tells him, At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. He goes on to tell Daniel two more times, you are greatly loved. And the word that he uses communicates the exact same idea of precious treasure that God wants as his own possession. Okay, those are two examples from the Old Testament. How about the New Testament? In the account of the Last Supper in the book of John, it tells us that Jesus loved his disciples. Then it goes on to tell us how he washed each individual's feet. After that, Jesus told his disciples that he loved each one of them. John 15, 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then four verses later, he says, Greater love has known than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And then what did he do? He went and laid down his life for his friends. Or what about Paul? Was he able to describe God's love as coming to him as an individual? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, what? who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul also could describe Christ's affections for the Philippian church. Affections that were in fact in, at work in his own heart. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection there is defined as the feeling of love itself. That's why we translate it affection. There's a feeling involved. Christ feels affection for his people. Now I asked you a minute ago if you think this applies to us today and my emphatic answer is yes it does. Jesus loves us corporately as a church but also individually with both affection and devotion with both passion and a desire to act for our good. And Jesus' affections for us are based on his sovereign will, not something that we bring to him in and of ourselves. Jesus' love towards us is committed delight. Jesus does, in fact, like us as individuals. In fact, Jesus treasures each one of his disciples. If you're here and you've repented of your sin and you've put your faith in Jesus, he's not only committed to you for life, he also takes pleasure 
in you. He desires you. He enjoys you. He rejoices over you. He gladly accepts you. He finds satisfaction in you. He cherishes you. And he wants you near him. Why does this matter? Scott Sauls asked this question in his book entitled Befriend. He writes this. Think with me for a moment. What if we really believed that God, through the generous love and sacrifice of his son Jesus, deeply likes us? What if we really believed that in the sight of God, we have nothing to prove, that being loved is our starting point, that our first and most essential task is to rest in and receive his finished work, that he is quite fond of us and there's nothing we can ever do to change that. I think there are two reasons why the fact that Jesus delights in us matters. First of all, all of us are born with a desire to be loved. Specifically, a desire for someone to notice us and think highly of us. In essence, to treasure us. I think this is a stamp from the image of God. It's a way that we mirror God. But we tend to curb that desire away. But let me give you an example of this in our life. We want people to think highly of us. We want them to treasure us. For example, isn't this what happens when a girl falls in love with a guy? He comes into her life and tells, starts telling her how great she is, how pretty she is, how he can't live without her, and she's swept off her feet. I'm not picking on the ladies. It happens both ways, Okay. Now, this happens all the time, and sometimes you're left scratching your head like, how in the world did that woman fall in love with that low-life guy? I mean, how else do you explain how I captured my wife, right? I mean, besides the fact that she was a committed believer and she was attractive, when I met her, she was a capable, intelligent, independent college student who had traveled the world, saved up money, involved herself in church ministry, had strong bonds with her family and her sister. Why in the world did she fall for a tall, skinny Kansas boy who drove an old Honda Accord and virtually had nothing in the bank? Well, I told her that her faith in Christ was inspiring and that she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen and that if she didn't marry me, I would not be able to live another day. Right, honey? Okay, so that's not all there is to the story. But you understand what I mean. We all want to be loved, cherished, treasured by someone else. But here's our problem. Because of sin, this desire gets twisted. And we go around asking others to value us based on what we bring to the table. See, I'm valuable because I drive such and such car. Notice me, my body is exactly what this culture says is attractive. Be impressed with my accomplishments, like all the good deeds that I've done. Don't we all do this? Another word for this is pride. But it's worse than that. It's idolatry. We think so highly of ourselves that we begin to think that we're the center of the universe. We think that everyone around us should show and know that we're the center of the universe and they should live accordingly. I mean, kids, 
Isn't this why when your big brother or sister doesn't give you what you want, you kick them, bite them, or yell at them? And isn't this why you adults lay on your horn when the driver in front of you fails to see that the light has turned green, even when it's only been green for like half a second? Do you see... Sin has convinced us that we are incredibly valuable in and of ourselves. And so we go around hoping people will affirm and recognize our inherent value. But here's the kicker. We come to God and we ask him to do the very same thing. We want God to affirm our value based on ourselves. Look at how much good I did for you, God. I've obeyed lots of your rules. And I'm so much better than most people. Isn't that the root of self-righteousness? Or look how many pleasures I gave up to follow you. Isn't that the heart of asceticism? But God is the only one who is valuable in and of himself. And what we're asking him to do when we do this is to bow down to us, to commit idolatry, to tell us that we are valuable without him in the picture, that he should be impressed by us. It's not enough that we're worshiping ourselves. We want him to join in as well. This is where we should get on our knees and repent and beg God to smash this habit of idolatry in our hearts. But how? How can we move from idolatry back to where God wants us to be? How can we stop loving the praise of man? How can we quit looking to our possessions to define our worth? How can we avoid using our money to impress others? This question reminds me of a children's story called You Are Special by Max Lucado. In this story, a carpenter named Eli has created a town full of little wooden people called Wimmicks. And all day long, these little wooden people go around putting either dots or stars on each other. The dots represent either disapproval. I'm sorry, the dots represent disapproval and the stars represent approval. One little guy, a wooden guy named Punchinello, just can't seem to get his act together. He's clumsy, awkward, and doesn't seem to fit in with everyone else. So naturally, the Wemmicks place dots all over him. Poor guy. Well, then one day he meets a girl named Lucia. And she doesn't have any dots or stars on her at all. Evidently, when the Wemmicks attempted to put dots or stars on her, they would just fall off. They didn't stick. Now, Punchinello cannot believe it, so he asks her how she does that. And she simply tells him that every day she goes and sees Eli, the carpenter who made her. So Punchinello decides to give it a try. He goes to visit Eli, and what he finds is that the carpenter has been looking forward to the day when Punchinello would come to him. And he's delighted to tell Punchinello how much he likes Punchinello. Punchinello can't understand why Eli would say that he liked him. So he asks Eli, why do I matter to you? And Eli responds, 
because you are mine. That's why you matter to me. Then he goes on and says, the reason why Lucius dots and stars don't stick is because he has, she has decided that my opinion of her is more important than the opinion of others. Punchinello is not sure he'll be able to do that. So Eli says to him, it will take time. Just keep coming back to me every day. As Punchinello leaves, he says to himself, I think he really means it. I think he loves me. I think he likes me. And at that moment, the first dot falls off of Punchinello. Now, aren't we all like mimics? Don't we go around looking for approval from others? Don't we give our stars and our dots? And what happens when we don't get the approval we crave? We're sad, depressed, angry, withdrawn, full of shame. And then we act out and retaliate in all kinds of ways. And then we come to God and we get upset. We get upset that instead of affirming our inherent worth, the first thing he does is reveal his worth, his excellence, how amazing he is, and how we've been living in such a way that shows that he isn't worth anything. Which is another way of saying that we've sinned against him. But how does God meet us in that sinful condition? when we want him to make much of us based only on ourselves, how does he show us how amazing he is? Well, he does it in a number of ways, like creating an amazing universe. But he did it in the biggest, most prominent and glorious way at the cross. Let me explain. Is it amazing to you kids that you enjoy playing with your friends? Is it amazing to you teenagers that you want to hang out with your peer group? Is it amazing to you adults that you like your children, love your children, that you like having your friends over for dinner? That's not really amazing at all, is it? What is amazing is that the God of the universe, who has every right to destroy his enemies, loves them instead. That's amazing. And in order to make them his precious treasure, he has sent his son to bear the penalty that their sin deserves. That is amazing. God didn't turn and run from us when we were stuck on ourselves, committing idolatry, worshiping our own image, and hoping that he would worship us too. He came to rescue us, and he sovereignly placed his love on us and made us his treasure. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Isaiah 62.5, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Can you see with me this morning why Christ's sovereign affections for you are better than any other person's affections for you? They don't change. With people, feelings of affection and love go up and down, don't they? 
They increase and decrease, but not so with God. Ephesians 1 verse 4, For he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In love God chose us in Christ to be lovely in his sight, to be blameless and holy. But did you catch what it said in verse 6? He said that his radical love resulted in something to the praise of glorious grace. What does that mean? Let me try to illustrate this from Psalm 149. Psalm 149 tells God's people to praise him. It tells us that we are to praise the Lord, sing to him, praise him, be glad in him, rejoice in him, make melody to him. But why? Why does it say we should do that? Verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. When God takes pleasure in his people, instead of feeling puffed up and good about ourselves, they're humbled because they know it's all because of his sovereign choice to treasure them. And then what do they do? They erupt in joyful praise of God. It's the praise of his glorious grace. This means that the way God frees us from spending our time making much of ourselves, being self-centered, trying to get God and others to value ourselves because of us, is by sovereignly taking pleasure in those who humbly come to him for the gift of salvation. Do you want to be free from this form of idolatry? Go to God and hear him tell you that he takes great delight in you, that he's committed to you. Go and drink of his affection for you. And guess what will happen to you? You will praise him because he did it all in grace. Nothing to do with what you brought to the table. Something else will happen to you as well. When you receive his sovereign delight in you, you will begin to want to share it with others. You see, the cup of your heart will begin to overflow and God will cause affections to spill out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul described when he said he yearned for the Philippians with the affections of Christ. This is also why Paul could say in Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. When God by his spirit begins to pour his love into our hearts, they will overflow with committed delight for each other. Now if you're here today and you've never tasted this kind of sovereign love, the kind that values you not because of anything you've done or are, I invite you today to come to Christ. His love, his affections will satisfy you. Your idols will never do. Run to him. Let's pray together.